Before we jump into the episode, here's a quick disclaimer about our content. The Remote Real Estate Investor Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice. The views, opinions, and strategies of both the hosts and the guests are their own and should not be considered as guidance from Roofstock. Make sure to always run your own numbers, make your own independent decisions, and seek investment advice from licensed professionals. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of The Remote Real Estate Investor. I'm Michael Albaum, and today I'm joined by Jeff Thompson, who's the Chief Blockchain Officer here at Roofstock, and Sanjay Raghavan, who's the Head of Web3 Initiatives here at Roofstock. And we're going to be talking today about what blockchain is and how it applies to us as real estate investors. So let's get into it. Jeff and Sanjay, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. I am super excited to chat with you both. Likewise. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So I know a little bit, obviously, who you guys are because we work together. But for anyone who isn't familiar with you, give us a quick and dirty description who you are and what is it that you're doing at Roofstock. Jeff, I'll kick it over to you first. Sure. So I'm Jeff Thompson. I currently have the title of Chief Blockchain Officer at Roofstock. Previously, I was General Counsel and um, I've been a lawyer for, by training for a long time and now uh, heading up the, the blockchain initiative at Roofstock together with Sanjay. Awesome. Great. Uh, I'm Sanjay, uh, head of uh, Web3 Initiatives. Previously, I was leading uh, securities uh, initiatives at Roofstock uh, coming up on actually three years this week. So uh, it's super exciting. Tomorrow, I think. Right on. So really quick follow-up questions for you both. Jeff, were you just like a crypto guy in your everyday life? I mean, how does a real, how does a, a lawyer turn into a blockchain official at a company at the C-suite level? I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, um, I kind of backed into it. That wasn't um, a plan, but um, I had been advising friends um, since 2017 during the ICO boom the uh, initial coin offering boom, when I started hearing people in my network talk about it and say things like, oh, well, it's not a security because it's a coin. So you don't have to follow the securities laws, you know? And I thought, I don't get a lot of the technical stuff they're talking about, but I know I can help them with the legal stuff. So then I just, I, I was acting as legal advisor uh, for a couple of years. And, and then um, Gary, our CEO knew that. And last year, maybe uh 12 months ago or a little bit more, our board came to our CEO and said, you guys, Roofstock, you need to get smart on blockchain. We're not saying you have to do it, but you know, we, we want you to have uh, an idea of whether there's something there. And so he asked me and, and Sanjay, because he knew I had some crypto background and um, there's a lot of legal and obviously the financial structuring is, is um, critical as well. So, so we kind of got into it together. Awesome. And Sanjay, at the risk of sounding like a total rookie, what the hell is Web3, man? I hear so much about it. Break it down for us. All right. So I know it's... Uh, so Web... So let's take a step back, right? So Web1, which was kind of the first incarnation of uh, the internet, right? Uh, there were sites that had static information. You could like type a UR, uh, URL and go and like consume that information. But that's all you could do is just a read-only type of a platform. And then a few years later, uh, the internet evolved to kind of Web2, which uh, widely is known as the read-write version of the internet. So not only could you consume information, but you could go and you know provide information and content to the internet as well as a consumer. Um, and what happened with Web2 was it you know that ability to read and write created all kinds of new interactions. 
And that allowed a lot of kind of the internet economy to bloom around it where um, the Googles and the Apples and Ebays and other large companies were able to um, curate a lot of the content and manage a lot of the traffic. Uh, but, you know, with social media and stuff, you were providing content as well and you were consuming content. There was e-commerce. So a lot of these things came about, but the power resided with a very few large corporations that kind of controlled all of these transactions. And um, the when when Web1 started, uh, the kind of original vision behind it was a more collaborative environment where the consumers and the creators and consumers could actually work with each other and use a token economy and share, you know, revenue and monetization. So that idea of, you know, read, write, and then adding own to it at the end. So it's a read, write, own type of economy that's decentralized, permissionless, trustless, has its own native payment rails where the content creators and content consumers are all working together uh, and, you know, there's no power resting with large corporations, but it's, you know, giving power back to the people. So that how, that's how I would sort of succinctly describe okay. Web3. And it's, so it's a sort of a new way of thinking about things and it's super exciting. Okay. Yeah, it does sound super exciting. And so give us all like a background. Again, treat me like I'm a third grader because that's probably my IQ level when it comes to the crypto and blockchain world. Give us all an idea of like what is blockchain and what is cryptocurrency? Um, and then we'll get in maybe on how to be thinking about it uh, with regard to the real estate space and, and why it even belongs here. You want to take this, Jeff? Sure. So, so the core concept for blockchain is that it's a network that um, can be validated. The data that's recorded onto the network, which is the chain, can be validated by um, an, a limitless number of third parties who aren't organized or connected in any other way. So these are called validators. Uh, I could have one, you could have one. They're, they're just computers that read the information that's coming in from the blockchain. They perform some mathematical calculations, and then they verify that the data that's been submitted is, is what it says it is. And then at that point, it's formalized and recorded to the block. And then, so these blocks are really just pieces of data, um, data that have been put together. And then as you um, form one block after another, that becomes the chain. So it's really just a chain of data that's been validated by third parties that are completely decentralized. So why is that important? Because it means that there's no third party, a, a corporation, a government, whoever it might be, that can intervene in the functioning of the blockchain. Once it's up and running, and you have enough people who are validating and writing to the to the system, it goes infinitely, and it can't be shut down. And and so the the first use case that really grabbed a lot of attention was payments, right? That's what Sanjay was alluding to in the early, you know, the the current um, Web two universe. You you don't have an easy way to send value to another person without going through a bank or a financial services company. Blockchain, Bitcoin allows you to do that. It's just simply on the, on the chain. If you have a um, value in the, in the form of Bitcoin, you can send it to any other address anywhere in the world instantaneously. And no one can stop you from doing that. So, the, you know, this really arose from kind of an idealistic um, perception, like we have to be able, we have to guarantee our own freedom. You know, the government can't intervene and prevent me from sending money to you. Um, and, and that's where, you know, it came from like the sophisticated 
cryptographers, mathematicians who had an idealistic view. And that's where Bitcoin came from. And then since then, it's expanded to uh, a lot more utility where you can do much, many more things other than just send payments. You can, uh, you know, NFTs, you can have lending platforms, you can have social media companies that are effectively on a blockchain and can't be shut down or controlled by third parties. So that's you know, that's the, the overview of kind of where it came from and, and why it's important today. Sanjay, anything to add? Yeah, no, taking a step from there, right? And and that's exactly right, right, Jeff. The original idea was, you know, this all came about during the great financial crisis of 2008 to 2010 or so, where people thought that these, you know, financial intermediaries are, you know, in control of our lives. And so Bitcoin kind of you know that was the reason why it came about as a peer-to-peer um, system where you can exchange value without you know involving these intermediaries. But then uh, over the years, we've kind of seen that world expand rapidly, and uh, there's other cryptocurrencies now, um, and one of the notable ones is Ethereum. And on the Ethereum network, um, there's actually the ability to create what's known as a smart contract. And a smart contract is essentially a piece of computer code that will execute based on a certain event occurring. And uh, why that is important is if you think about it from a disintermediation perspective, you know, in a transaction where two parties are involved and party A needs to provide a good uh, or service and party B needs to make a payment for that, uh, you need a way to make sure that both parties are adhering to their portion of the agreement or contract, right? Um, and so oftentimes what happens in the financial services world is in order to make sure that both parties are compliant with their aspects of the contract, you create an intermediary in the middle that takes that position of collecting information or payment from both parties and sending it across. Uh, and a very common example of this in real estate, uh, Michael, you as a uh, an owner of uh, you know dozens of properties, you've gone through this process many, many times. But you, there's an escrow agent involved. Exactly what I was thinking. Making sure of, yeah. that you know, right, uh, the property title moves over to you know the buyer, and the and the money goes to the seller, right? Uh, but imagine you had a piece of computer software that executed on a sale, and it made sure that the two parties were both appropriately receiving what they were expected to receive, and there was no intermediary involved in this process. So this this all executed basically on the click of a button, right? Uh, like that would be game changing in the real estate world. And that's what we're trying to do now with Roofstock on chain. Holy crap. For anybody who's not watching this on video, I just have to pick up my jaw up off the floor because I was totally agape. So I have so many questions. I want to take just a step back. And so, Jeff, you were talking about this, these validations that can be done by any number of, of people. So I'm thinking about like a real world example. So if I go to the store and I buy something with my credit card, I put down my credit card, they give me the goods. And then in this case, would the validator be like the credit card company that says, look, this is the charge that like, how do I think about that from like a a traditional example? That's that's exactly right. The the validator or usually there are multiple, but they'll they play the function of the credit card company. But instead of sending your data and the transaction data to the, the credit card company where the credit, you know, the data goes to the credit card company, the credit card company says, okay, this person has credit and the transaction is now going to be posted on their account. And then they send the, the okay back to the merchant. Instead, 
the merchant would send the the data to a blockchain. The blockchain validators would pick up that transaction. They would um, validate that you know all of the details are the same. Usually, it's it's a, a small number of validators that have to agree on on the transaction details to make sure that there aren't you know nothing's been missed. And then once they they've re- reached that consensus whether that's five or 10 validators or whatever it may be at that point, then it goes back to the merchant and, it's, and it says the mer- now the blockchain has been updated to show that this transaction occurred. Jeff or you or whoever was spending the money um, now no longer has that money. So I had that money in Bitcoin. I gave it to the merchant. The merchant sent it to the blockchain and said, Hey guys, can you verify that you're debiting Jeff's account and you're adding it to my account? Everyone said, okay, verified, validated, coming back. Now I can't spend that money. I don't have it anymore. And it's in your account. So that's, you know, a high level okay. of how that would work. Okay. And, and a couple of more things there, right? Like um, if you, you know, credit card transactions for small dollar values is, is one example. But if you look at larger dollar values and there's ACH transactions that take three or four days to get validated through the banking system, yeah. a wire transaction, if you're trying to buy a house and you need to make a wire payment, you're rushing to the nearest retail branch right. and scheduling an appointment to go and do the it's wire, such right? A pain. <laughs> um, and it's, it's it's all a total pain. And like, imagine you had a way twenty four seven, right? Like, um, you're looking at you're browsing a site today. You find a property you really like. You want to buy that property. It's Sunday night at ten p.m. You just click the button, and you know your wallet says you have enough money, and the smart contract validates that you have the money. Transfers the property over to you, right? Like, imagine a world that's uh, like that where you don't have to worry about waiting three or four days for an ACH or running to your bank and getting an appointment, waiting in line to get a wire done. And it's all literally you're doing all this from your computer, click off a button 24-7, and, you send payments to anywhere in the world. Right? And the cost is, in most cases, negligible. Uh, you know, the wire fee is whatever, $35, $50. Right. Um, it takes a day, you know, some amount of time to process. ACH could be clawed back. The, the clawback concept that exists with ACH, that doesn't happen in blockchain. That doesn't exist. Like once it's final, it's validated, it's done. And you could, you know, it, a, a simple payment transaction might cost from a few cents to a few bucks, but it's not going to be anywhere near the cost of a wire transfer. And, and the transaction is immutably recorded on the blockchain. Nobody can contest it because you can go and open up that transaction on the blockchain and say, these two parties agreed to this transaction and it's ha- you know it was hashed on the blockchain and there's this unique hash that represents this transaction right so there's no disputing it later on two parties agree the transaction gets done it's instantaneously recorded and so that that makes this platform as a as a technology choice you have innumerable number of possibilities because once you have those types of payment rails you can build all kinds of applications around it this is insane you guys so like we were talking about the validators and Jeff, you were saying whatever, four or five or 10 validation points and people are doing it. So is it literally like people on their computer going, like watching their screen for these payments going back and forth or is this happening automatically? No, it can happen. It happens. It's automatic. Yeah. You, you set up a server that has the right hardware. There are different hardware and software requirements for different uh, blockchains, but it runs silently in the background or in some cases it's loud, la- it's loud because there are a lot of fans. Cause it's a lot of fans. I've heard that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, but it's happening 24 seven in the background. And, and in most cases it's just set or forget set and forget. Um, you don't have to be online all the time um, doing anything 
manually. And one, one other thing I wanted to point out was, you know, obviously with banks, you can't go there on weekends, after hours, bank holidays and such. Right. But even a MasterCard or Visa, if they're having a problem with their servers or something, you can have outages where, you know, for a couple of hours, you're not able to do any credit card transactions, right? right? Whereas on the blockchain, that doesn't happen, right? Because there's uh, blocks can be like, even if my computer was one of the validators, but for whatever reason, it's not working right now. There are hundreds of other computers that are doing the same thing that are waiting to pick up the next block and compute it and solve the puzzle. And so, you know, as Jeff was saying earlier, once the blockchain is up and running and there's, you know, enough infrastructure in terms of validators that support that blockchain, you know, it's then it's permanently out there and it's, you can't shut it down. So that kind of brings me to my next question. And so you both are talking about this decentralization aspect. And I think I've heard so much about the crypto world. It's like getting away from big banks and governments and that sort of thing. But if this information is, I mean, it's public at this point, right? When I, Jeff, when I send you money or buy a service from you, it's now public information. Just to, just to clarify on that, right? The part of the information that's public is that this wallet address transacted with this other wallet address. But uh, it's not necessarily public that, you know, Michael transacted with Jeff, right? So uh, what's publicly stored is just the, you know, so, you know, when we talk about privacy, uh, oftentimes people um, use the words privacy and anonymity uh, interchangeably, but they're two different things, right? Um, You know, in one example where there's just two wallets transacting with each other, you both still have full anonymity, but the privacy concerning the fact that a transaction occurred between two wallets, that may be public information, but, but that's the kind of subtle Got difference. it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That makes total sense. Because where I was going with the question is, if I send Jeff money for a service, I mean, that could be a taxable event on the traditional world. Like if you were a credit card company or you were a merchant, I send you that you have sales tax to pay. So I'm imagining governments point to the, me sending you money and say, well, now we're going to tax it. But Sanjay, what you're saying is that the actual dollar amount or what it was for might not be available to them. All they could see was someone sent money to someone else. End of story. We use the amount of money that went from A to B, but um, you don't like people don't automatically know who A and who B were. Um, in the U.S. For. Or what it's for. Or what it's for, right? Yeah. Uh, in the U.S., people are required basically to report their own earnings. And that's, you know, whether it's on the in the crypto side or non-crypto side. Uh, but, you know, you're required to report your earnings. And in other countries and jurisdictions, they've passed laws where uh, crypto transactions are not necessarily taxable. So, um, like, if you bought Bitcoin for $5,000 and sold it for $20,000, you may not have capital gains taxes in other jurisdictions. In the US, we do. And and that's, you know, self-reported uh, for the most part. This is so nuts. Okay. So taking one more step forward, we're talking about these coins. We talked about Bitcoin and we mentioned Ethereum as well. What gives these things value? Is it just that we have generally, I mean, the same thing can be said for the dollar. It's enough people have accepted or any currency, enough people have bought into this idea that this piece of paper that has an old president's face on it is worth what we've decided it's worth. Same thing for Bitcoin and and Ethereum? Exactly the same. Hmm. All right. Yeah. Nothing else. There's nothing else to it. We, you know, we all agree today that Bitcoin is worth 20,000. If it goes up, 
um, then you know that's literally the market price. It's set by the people in the market who are transacting on a you know every second, and so it's a very clear uh, pricing mechanism. In a way, you know, it's pure demand and supply that drive pricing for these types of uh, alternative currencies or cryptocurrencies. Uh, the dollar, for example, you know, we price a dollar bill to be worth a dollar, right? And so uh, you'll always be able to redeem one dollar for a dollar, but, you know, inflation and other characteristics might make it less valuable to you, right? Like if a loaf of bread was 50 cents and now it's a dollar, you know, you, you're paying more money to get it, but, you know, you're not paying more bills necessarily, you know, like the dollar bill is always right. a dollar bill, right? Whereas one one Bitcoin or one Ethereum, its value can go up over time, almost like the stock market, right? If you're looking at a share of Microsoft is $100 today, but because we all think Microsoft is very valuable or Apple is very valuable and the next iPhone is the most sexiest thing that's come out. And therefore, you know, we think we should, you know, put more value to the Apple stock, right? So the concept is similar with Bitcoin and Ethereum. It's simply people, uh, there are there are people who are, um, you know, buyers and then there are, they're long on Bitcoin and then there are people who are short on Bitcoin. And if there are more people long than short, then the price is going to go up. If there are more people short at a particular point in time, price will come down. Okay. So it's pure demand and okay. supply. Cool. And so we mentioned... I think you both mentioned a couple of different use cases for the blockchain and for crypto. What, like, where do you see this going? And for Roofstock specifically, maybe you could talk about what we're doing as a company uh, with regards to blockchain and where you see it evolving from from here. Sure. So, so the you know the easiest use case for the blockchain technology is for something that is entirely on chain, right? Payment is a perfect. Um, uh, example, right? The you know I, I give you send, send you something of value, call it Bitcoin. You accept that, and that's all on the blockchain, and that's pretty easy. Um, what we're doing is we think taking the next step forward for blockchain, and we're not the only ones, but we we think that we do have something to add here, um, which is to bridge blockchain to real world assets, and that's where things start to get a little bit tricky because. Let's say that you have a home, you call it a, a home on chain, a tokenized home, whatever it is, and you have a token, a blockchain uh, representation of a home, but it's a real world home. And so, you know, you say, oh, I, I go to my blockchain wallet, my crypto wallet, and I see I have this home token. That's great. But let's say it's not the home that I live in. And in fact, it's a home somewhere else in the country, and I haven't been there for a while. How do I even know that there's still a home there, right? And if I want to sell it to you, um, you, you know, you you like the idea of using a smart contract to buy and sell this home. You like the idea of having a one-click transaction, of having certainty that you're going to get um, what you know the home token in exchange for your money. That's all great, but how do you know that you're actually buying a real home and not just something that? is called a home on a blockchain, whatever that even means, right? Right. And so that's where we've spent all of the last nine months and the better part of the last 12 months diving into the nitty gritty legal details to understand and practical implications to understand how we can put this together in a system that works. And the answer is you have to have some type of validation from the real world as well. Obviously, you know, the scenarios that I just mentioned we can't allow that to happen where someone purchases a home token 
and finds out that the home burned down three months ago. So, you know, you just got nothing. Um, right. And so the way that I think what Roofstock can bring to this equation is the deep, detailed knowledge about how real estate transactions work, plus the blockchain, the blockchain structuring, the legal implementation. And that's the value add that we have. I think there are a lot of others in the space and we encourage everyone to get out there and try, you know, try to build. Um, but we do see others who don't have the real estate experience. And even though they have a beautiful blockchain strategy, they don't know how to connect that. And that you end up with something that's not useful. So what we're doing is, you know, designing a system that ensures that before any home is transacted, it's gone through all of the usual checks and balances that are necessary for a real estate transaction. An inspection has been done recently. Um, we've done, you know, made, made sure that taxes are paid, made sure that insurance is is in place, made sure that the title is is you know unencumbered. We we do all of that because you have to do all of that. No one's going to buy it if you don't. But we do that behind the scenes. And so, when by the time that you as the buyer come to see our site and you see the home the home tokens that are listed there, you know that uh, you have a data room that shows all of the the documents that I just mentioned and more. So your diligence is already done for you. You don't need um, uh, an inspection contingency because you have an inspection report sitting right there. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't need um, on the, on the, on the flip side, you know, you don't need an escrow um, agent because the smart contract simply, it won't, execute, it won't perform its function unless the buyer has the funds that it says it has. So, you know, the smart contract at the time that you as the buyer purchase, you click, I want to buy this home, the smart contract checks, do you have money, the right amount of funds in your wallet? You know, they check the other side, does the seller have a home, which has already been approved by Roofstock to be sold? Yes, yes, the transaction happens, and it's done. And if, if one of those isn't true, then it fails, and you know we have to go back to the to the drawing board and, and fix whatever was wrong. Right, and and then to add to that, right, the kind of the first version of smart contracts and NFTs and all these things that came about uh, on Web three, um, uh, you know, a lot of those uh, assets themselves had the value in it, right? So you might have heard about projects like Board Ape or CryptoPunks. These are well known NFT projects where people are spending. 70 90 to buy you know a jpeg image image of you know this uh, a punk or an ape uh, but in those cases that image itself has that value embedded in it and when when people get that image when they buy that they've already exchanged value right but the example jeff is giving is with a real life uh, real world asset the nft is a representation of that real world asset but it's that real world asset that has the value in it and so when when people are transacting these NFTs on the marketplace, Roofstock has to make sure that, you know, what they're buying and selling uh, corresponds to that uh, real world asset that has that value. And we've gone through the inspection and other diligence process to make sure that is still true, right? So that's the sort of the next leap in the Web3 world where you go beyond just the, you know, cryptocurrencies uh, and crypto native uh, assets getting traded. And now you start looking at real world applications. Jeff, something I'm thinking about is like, so if I'm trying to understand this, I'm, I buy this token, which the underlying asset kind of backing the token up, if you will, is the home, 
right? So I then own the home as well. How does that work for like insurance purposes? If I, I got to go get insurance on this home, am I, Michael, like going out to my traditional insurance people and saying, okay, well, I own this home or like who's on title of the home? How, how does that all work? Is the token on the title? Yeah. All, all the right questions. Um, so, so the way that we're setting this up, each home is titled in its own LLC. So we have a limited liability company where the home is titled. And so that really facilitates the transfer between different parties because you don't have to re-record title every time the home token is sold. Um, The title obviously has to be recorded the traditional way at the county recorder's office um, the first time that it's transferred into the LLC. And then from that moment on, it doesn't need to be retitled because the only thing that's changing hands is the LLC, the ownership of the LLC, the, in, the membership interest, it's called, like the share of the LLC. So that's that's how we unlock that so that when I sell you my, my home token, I'm selling you an LLC that owns the home. And you, as the owner of the LLC, you have full control of the LLC and thereby for full control of the underlying home. So you can do whatever you want with the home. If you want to rent it, you can rent it. If you want it to be a long-term rental, a short-term rental, you you get to decide all of that. You get to decide when you put the new roof on or if you want to repair the roof instead of replace it, you make all those decisions. As far as the insurance question that you asked, we do have an agreement with an existing um, insurance company that's tech forward and they're interested in working on this project. So um, we've already set that up. The first time you buy a home from us, it will come with one year um, of property insurance that's prepaid. If you want to change that, you can you can change it. If you want to cancel it and replace it with a different insurer, you can. Um, what we found is that a lot of intermediaries in, in the space are not necessarily comfortable in dealing with this type of um, transaction. So we've spent a, a fair amount of time diligencing a lot of you know, providers in the market. And we think the ones that we have are, are very good, but it's up to you as the owner, if you want to uh, have a specific insurer or a specific title company, you can do that. Um, but otherwise it's already in place and it's really as easy as just paying your annual premiums. You can, you don't have to think about it um, if you don't want to. Okay. So the follow-up, the, what popped into my mind immediately, and then we're going to get you guys out of here, but we live in California so Roofstock obviously doesn't have a very big footprint here because there's not a lot of cash flow potential or it's much more difficult to make the numbers work as compared to a lot of other parts of the country. So Sanjay, if you buy a home for a million bucks, tokenize it, and now your property taxes in California are based on your purchase price. So if five years down the road, you sell it to me for 2 million bucks, traditionally, my new property tax value is going to be based on 2 million bucks. But are you saying that because this this sale isn't getting recorded as it would traditionally, that my property taxes are still going to be based on your original sale price of a million bucks? In many states, that's uh, that would be true. But uh, in California, unfortunately, Prop 13 would pick that sale up. So uh, uh, it's a state-by-state okay. analysis. And in most of the states, um, you know, the transaction would be fine. You'd individually report any capital gains uh, on your taxes, of course. Uh, but in California, the transfer does get picked up. Dang it. They always get you somehow, but maybe <laughs> in some states, it sounds like that might not get picked up. There's, That's right. There's less of an issue. In, in, in many states. states. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Okay. 
man, I thought I had this huge unlock, but clearly you guys have, have already thought of, of all this. So this is, this is super exciting, guys. Um, we definitely need to continue the conversation. Got a lot more questions, a lot more information I would love to disseminate to our listeners. But thank you both so much for, for joining me. If people want to learn more about Web3 and blockchain and crypto in general, is there, are there good resources out there that we can point people to? Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely come to our website to learn about real estate tokenization. That's onchain.roofstock.com. And also, um, you know, follow us on crypto Twitter. It's uh, at ours on chain. Um, and then um, individually, like Jeff and I uh, do contribute uh, in Twitter and LinkedIn and other areas as well. So, uh, you know, look us up and follow us as well um, on those platforms. And don't feel, don't hesitate to reach out. Like, you know, we're happy to talk. We're here. We're, you know, we're doing something new. We know a lot of people have a lot of questions and we're happy to answer the questions and in the ancient conversation. So um, ping us. We're, we're happy to chat. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you both again for coming on and super looking forward to doing this again soon. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Likewise. Talk soon. Thanks. All right, everyone, that was our episode. A huge thank you to Jeff and Sanjay for coming on. We are going to definitely be having them back on again soon. So if you have additional questions about things you just heard or blockchain things in general, we'd love for you to see those in the comment section wherever it is you get your podcast, and we will try to get to them on the next episode with Jeff and Sanjay. As always, if you like the episode, feel free to leave us just a traditional rating or review. We love those as well, and we look forward to seeing you on the next one. Happy investing. Happy investing.